Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Chapter 8. Part A. Of the Delafield Affair by Florence Finch Kelly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8. Part A. Spectres of the Past. Restless was the night that followed for Alexander Bancroft. His sleep was troubled by many a dream in which one friend after another moved swiftly on to violent death. With the coming of dawn he arose to look out from the eastern windows of his room. The sky was a dome of rosy light, and below lay the vast plain, dim but colorful, its gray-green mottled with vague bands and patches of opalescent lights and shadows, and dotted with little islands of vivid green. His eyes clung to these darker spots, which he knew to be thickets of mesquite. Piercing their shade, his inner vision showed him the still body of his friend. So real was the mental picture that he turned pale about the lips and abruptly left the window. If anything had happened, he kept reassuring himself, it had been at Delmay Baxter's instigation. He himself had had nothing to do with it. If Baxter had decided that his affairs would go more smoothly with Conrad out of the way, why should he, Alexander Bancroft, trouble himself further? And if— anything had happened. Again he felt the loosening of mental strain, and his spirits rose in exultation at the prospect of freedom and safety. Life was more attractive than ever, with that menacing figure no longer threatening him with disclosure, disgrace, and death. He could go on with his plans for the accumulation of fortune and the enjoyment of life. He could still hold Lucy's love and honor, travel with her, marry again, work his way to a commanding place in the world of business. The future opened before him as easy and inviting as the stairs down which he went to breakfast. Lucy ran to meet him with a good-morning kiss and arose for his buttonhole. "'It's the prettiest I could find in my conservatory,' she smiled at him. "'But it isn't half nice enough for my daddy, dear. "'You don't look well this morning, daddy,' she went on anxiously. "'Is anything the matter?' His hand slipped caressingly down over her curls and drew her to his breast in a quick embrace instinct with the native impulse of the animal to protect its offspring. "'She shall never know,' was the thought in his mind. "'Daddy, what a bear-hug that was!' she laughed. "'Like those you used to give me when I was a little girl. It didn't feel as if you were ill.' "'I'm not,' he answered lightly, kissing her pink cheek. "'I guess I smoked too much yesterday, and so didn't sleep very well. Yes, I promise. I'll be more careful to-day.' At breakfast his eyes dwelt much upon Louise Dent's face, gentle and pleasant. He had always liked her, and since her coming on this visit she had seemed very attractive. He knew she had strength and poise of character, and a nature refined and cheerful. These qualities in her 
with a certain genial unobtrusive companionableness, had long ago won his warm friendship. But was there not in her steady grey eyes a hint of passionate depths he had never thought of before? It stirred him so deeply that for a little while as they lingered over the breakfast-table he forgot the other facts of life, noting the faint rose flush in her cheeks, the graceful turn of her wrists, and the soft whiteness of her throat as she threw back her head and laughed. And Lucy loved her so devotedly. If she were willing to marry him, their household would surely be harmonious and happy. Lucy fluttered beside him to the gate, her arm in his, as she chattered to him of the funny things her Chinese cook had been saying and doing. She lingered there, her eyes following his figure, until he turned, half a block away, to wave his hat in response to her farewell handkerchief. By the time he reached the foot of the hill, Bancroft's mind was once more engrossed with the need of knowing whether or not he was at last secure from ignominious exposure. He no longer disguised from himself the fact that news of Conrad's death would be most welcome. He looked eagerly up and down the main streets. There was no sign of excitement. Had nothing happened, then? But it was still early. Moreover, news of the affair might not reach the town for a day or two. The sound of horses' feet coming at a swift trot down the street, on the other side of the stream, made his heart beat quickly. He lingered at the door of his bank until the horsemen came into view, under the big cottonwoods, at the next corner. It was Red Jack from the Socorro Springs Ranch. At once his heart leaped to certainty. He turned to enter the bank, but stopped and looked back, undecidedly. Red Jack had not dismounted, but had drawn rein in front of the courthouse at the next corner, and was sitting there quietly, looking up and down the road as if expecting somebody. He led a saddled horse. Perhaps he was to take a physician back with him. But he seemed in no haste, and in his manner there was neither excitement nor anxiety. Bancroft could wait no longer to learn what had happened. With hands in pockets he sauntered down the street. "'Hello, Jack,' he said indifferently to the waiting horseman. "'You're in town early this morning?' "'I sure hiked along from the ranch early enough,' the cowboy replied. "'The boss hired a new man last night, and I had to come over this morning after him.' Bancroft's eyes were on the cigar he was taking from his pocket, which he handed to the cowboy, saying idly, "'Why, he intended last night to carry the man behind him. Did he change his mind? The man was a Mexican, wasn't he?' "'Yes, a measly coyote.' The boss didn't bring him last night because he thought it would be too hard on Brown Betty to carry double. I wonder if maybe that ain't my man coming down the street right now. I've done forgot his name. Do you happen to know it, Mr. Bancroft? I think it's Jose Gonzalez. He came here from Delmay Baxter, who recommended him to me as a first-rate cowboy. Well, he'll have to be a peach if he strikes the boss's gate, Red Jack rejoined, motioning to the Mexican. Bancroft walked back to his place of business, with brows knitted, and mouth drawn into grim lines. His mind was acting rapidly and ruthlessly. The sudden collapse of his house of cards, the knowledge that danger was still as imminent as ever, left him savage with desire for Curtis Conrad's death, or rather, for the delectable land that lay beyond it. Nobody but this young hothead with his insensate desire for revenge knew or cared anything about that old affair now. With him out of the way, there would be no danger from anybody or anything. Why wasn't the man sensible enough to take the money he was willing to pay, and be satisfied? Perhaps the receipt of another check or two would soften his purpose. It was worth trying. And there was still the Mexican. Baxter had surely said something to him, 
and the fellow seemed to understand that he, also—but he had said nothing about it, and whatever the creature suspected was his own inference. Evidently the Mexican did suspect something, and had some purpose in his mind. With Conrad so intent upon his destruction, had he not every right to protect himself and his child? Of course he had, he told himself fiercely, and what means he might use were his own affair. At the door of the bank Rutherford Jenkins met him with a smiling salutation. "'Good morning, Mr. Bancroft. This is lucky. I was waiting for you here. But I've got so much to do that I'd begun to be afraid I wouldn't be able to see you before I go back.' Bancroft greeted him pleasantly. "'What do you mean, Jenkins?' he went on. "'By deserting to Martinez. Hadn't you better think again about that? We need you on our side.' "'That's exactly what I want to see you about,' said Jenkins, in a confidential tone. "'Can't you come over with me to Bill Williams's hotel for a few minutes? I want to have a talk with you.' They went back together, Bancroft wondering if Jenkins, who was regarded as a desirable ally by both parties, notwithstanding his character, was about to make overtures to him for deserting the Martinez fold and coming back to Baxter's. "'Perhaps that spanking Kurt gave him has set him against the whole Martinez following,' he thought. "'Baxter will be mighty glad to get him back.' and I'll do my best to cinch the bargain so he can't crawl." When they entered the hotel-room, Jenkins moved leisurely about, got out a bottle of whiskey, and hunted up some cigars, talking all the time glibly about other matters, and jumping inconsequently from one subject to another. Bancroft made several attempts to bring the conversation to the point, but each time Jenkins either blandly ignored, or skillfully evaded his leading. Finally Bancroft said, looking at his watch, "'Well, Jenkins, I've got to be at the bank very soon, and if there's anything particular you want to say, suppose we get down to business." "'Yes, yes, certainly,' Jenkins replied unconcernedly. "'That's what I'm coming to right now.' He gave Bancroft a cigar, lighted one himself, made some jokes as he bustled aimlessly about the room, and at last sat down on the foot of the bed, facing the banker, who occupied the only chair in the little room. He ceased speaking, and Bancroft, looking up suddenly, caught in his face an expression of expectant triumph. The tip of his tongue was darting over his lips, and his small dark eyes were fixed on his guest with a look of malicious satisfaction. Instantly Bancroft's nerves were alert with the sense of coming danger. He blew out a whiff of smoke and calmly returned the other's gaze. Their eyes met thus, the one gloating, the other outwardly unmoved but inwardly a start with sudden alarm. Then Jenkins began, in a blandly insinuating tone. "'Before we come to that matter about Martinez, I want to ask you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Della—I beg your pardon, Mr. Bancroft—I thought I would ask you—you've poked about a good deal, out here in the West, and in out-of-the-way places, too, and I've been wondering—I thought I'd ask you—if you've ever run across a gentleman of the name of—of Della—Della—let me see. Yes, Delafield, that's it, Sumner L. Delafield of Boston. Do you remember whether or not you've ever met him?" Bancroft did not blanch nor flinch. For so many years he had schooled himself to such constant watchfulness and incessant self-control that an impassive countenance and manner had become a habit. Lucy, with her uncompromising moral decisions and her swift, unsparing condemnations, could come nearer to unnerving him than could any bolt from the blue like this. He flicked the ash from his cigar, hesitating a moment as if searching his memory, but really wondering whether Jenkins knew anything, or was merely guessing and trying to draw him out. The latter seemed the more likely. 
"'I can't say on the instant whether I ever met such a man or not. As you say, I have gone about a good deal, and, as my business most of the time has been that of mining and trading in mines, it is often taking me into out-of-the-way places, and I have met a great many people. At this moment I don't recall the name.' "'Don't you? I'm sorry, for I thought perhaps you could verify for me a curious story about the man that has just come to my knowledge. You know I'm always picking up information about people. I find it comes in handy now and then. Well, if you've never met him, have you ever, in the course of your western travels, run across a man—he was a mining man, too—a mining man named Hardy. John Mason Hardy? There's a curious story about him, too, or rather about a man who was associated with him in a mining enterprise down in old Mexico. The other man's name was Smith. A very serviceable name is Smith, sort of like a black derby hat. No distinguishing mark about it, and easy to exchange by mistake if you'd rather have some other man's. End of chapter 8. Part A.